Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, June 10th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the announcement by the African Union that the continent is working uh, towards introducing a single currency for the region. Several people have been reportedly killed in an explosion in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia. The Sudanese military structures fighting for control of the country have announced another 24-hour ceasefire. And the suspended Nigerian governor of the Central Bank uh, has been arrested by the authorities just days after the inauguration of the new president, Bola Tinubu. We will continue in this program our month-long focus on Black Music Month. We'll have tributes to Rex Cardinal Lawson, uh, Milt Jackson, and Ray Brown. Also, we will look in depth uh, at the role of BRICS and the formation of the New Development Bank, which is targeting emerging economies. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. And uh, we're going to start out our Black Music Month tribute for today uh, with the music of Cardinal Rex Lawson, uh, who was uh, from the West African state of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. Uh, Lawson, of course, being one of the pioneers in popular uh, West African music, uh, dubbed as High Life. Listen uh, to the music of uh, Cardinal Rex Lawson, and we'll have uh, more information about him after this segment. Let's listen in.
she ran away. And she blow my mother, then she ran away.
state of uh, Nigeria as part of our Black Music Month uh, 2023 commemoration. June is Black Music Month, and of course, uh, we are here uh, every week uh, commemorating uh, Black Music in June or any other month uh, throughout the year. That was the sound of uh, Rex Jim Lawson, who was born on March 4th of 1938. Uh, He died uh, on January the 16th of 1971. He was known as Cardinal Rex. Uh, He was a singer, a trumpeter, and a band leader uh, from Buguma, uh, Nigeria. Uh, He became one of the best-known high-life musicians of the 1960s in Africa uh, when Cardinal and his band dominated Nigeria's music scene. Uh, Rex Lawson was born in 1938 in Buguma, uh, he was born to a Calabari chieftain father and an Igbo mother uh, from Owiri. Uh, he was given the name Irek K. Sima, uh, which translates to do not name this one, uh, due to his father's belief that he would not live past infancy. He was the fourth child to his parents, the others having died of illnesses. At a young age, uh, Lawson was afflicted with a severe case of smallpox, while his mother brought him to various medicine men outside of Calabari for treatment, his father feared he would die and lost interest in raising him. Lawson later sued his father for neglect while he was at school. He won the case, but his father cursed him in return, who did not communicate with one another until Lawson began his musical career. Rex Lawson uh, began his career in Port Harcourt uh, as a band member for the Lord Edison Starlight Melody Orchestra. Uh, he later played with Sammy Obut, uh, Bobby Benson, Victor Olali, Olaya, Chris Agillo, and other Ghanaian and Nigerian musicians and bands. His greatest success came as the leader of the Majors Band, also called the Rivers Men in later years. There, uh, he recorded hits including So Allah Teme, Yellow Sisi, Gowan Special, and Jolly Papa. By 1965, Lawson had written more than 100 songs. In July of 1970, he traveled to the United Kingdom, where from then until September, he recorded an album, Rex Lawson 
in London. A highly emotional and deep musician, Lawson was known to weep and shed tears while singing his own songs on stage, notably the haunting So Allah Teme, the late Sir Maliki Shoman, uh, the Nigerian tenor saxophonist who played with Rex Lawson, uh, Bobby Benson, and Victor Hawa Ifo, remembers Lawson as always placing music over money. Lawson is famed for his infectious braggarishness, his musical vision, perseverance, and individuality. He was able to sing in many different languages and dialects, such as the Kalabari, Nimbe, Ijo, Ibo, Rehobo, Ibibio, Effect, and those of the Cameroonian as well as Ghanaian peoples. In most high-life bands, the trumpet often played a leading role in the music that they played. Lawson broke from this trend by frequently featuring alto saxophone solos in his songs. Tragically, Lawson died on January the 16th of 1971 in an automobile accident at the Urham Migbi corner of the Asaba Benin Road while on his way to Wari, Nigeria for a performance. He was only 32 years old. After his death, his band continued as the Professional Seagulls. Lawson was married to Chief uh, Regina Lex, Rex Lawson, who died in October of 2008. And uh, that was a tribute uh, to Rex Lawson, the legendary uh, high-life uh, Pan-African music uh, aficionado, professional, and pioneer. And you're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, June the 10th, uh, 2023. We'll move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. A senior official from the African Union said just two days ago that the continental body was on its course uh, with its plans to introduce a single African currency. Albert Muchanga, uh, the AU Commissioner for Economic Development, Trade, Tourism, Industry, and Minerals, said leaders of member countries adopted the macroeconomic convergence criteria in 2021 as part of efforts towards having a single currency. He said in remarks uh, delivered during the 22nd Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa, COMISA, heads of state and government summit that the criteria will be implemented by the African Monetary Institute, whose headquarters will be in the Federal Republic of Nigeria. And in other news, in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, police are saying that nine people, including three soldiers, were killed last night. Uh, They were killed as a result of an extremist attack on a beachside hotel in the capital of Mogadishu. The police statement said that 10 other people were wounded while 84 people were rescued from uh, the hours-long assault that ended early this morning. Al-Qaeda's East Africa affiliate, Al-Shabaab, claimed responsibility for the attack. The Somalia-based extremist group is known for carrying out attacks on hotels and other high-profile locations in the capital of Mogadishu, usually starting with suicide bombings. Witnesses uh, told uh, the press that some people were trapped inside Pearl Beach Hotel, popular with government officials. The Lido Beach area is one of Mogadishu's
most popular, Abdul Qadir Adar, the director of the Amin Ambulance Service, said that what occurred last night was quite tragic as it occurred in an unexpected setting and at an unexpected time. Muki Usman uh, told the media that she and her friends, quote, instantly fled for cover, unquote, in the restaurant when they heard explosions and gunfire shortly before 8 p.m. last evening. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Lieutenant General Shams al-Din Kabashi, uh, Deputy Commander-in-Chief of the Sudanese Armed Forces, reaffirmed the unwavering support of Sudan's military leadership for the Commander-in-Chief Abdel Fattah al-Bahan amidst ongoing challenges inside that country. During his visit to Army sites in Khartoum yesterday, Kabashi highlighted the presence of foreign mercenaries, saying, quote, we do not fight the RSF elements, unquote. He referred to Chadian fighters from various uh, groups who recently joined the Rapid Support Forces. He emphasized the commitment uh, of the armed forces to remain unified under the leadership of Al-Bahan, who effectively manages the battles alongside the military leadership, as he said. And um, finally, and we also want to mention in regard uh, to the situation in Sudan that the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces have reached an agreement on a 24-hour ceasefire as announced by the American and Saudi facilitators yesterday. The ceasefire set to commence on June 10th today at 6 a.m. local time aims, aims to halt the ongoing conflict in Sudan, at least temporarily. According to the terms of the agreement, both the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces have committed to refraining from prohibited movements, attacks, <clears throat> the use of aircraft and drones, aerial bombardment, <coughs> artillery strikes, reinforcement of positions, and resupply of forces. The primary objective of the ceasefire is to prevent any party from seeking military advantage during this temporary truce. Additionally, the agreement guarantees the unhindered movement and delivery of crucial humanitarian assistance throughout the country, acknowledging the frustrations of the Sudanese people due to the inconsistent implementation of previous ceasefires. The American and Saudi facilitators have proposed this latest initiative as a concerted effort to break the cycle of violence. And finally, in this segment, a video of security operatives surrounding suspended governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria at an unnamed airport is currently trending on social media. In the video, the longest serving uh, Central Bank of Nigeria governor in history was seen dressed in a uh, traditional attire and a matching cap. A Toyota, he looks Vehicles slowly drove towards the jet while plainclothes security officers opened the door for him. One of the operatives who had handcuffs on his right hand followed Ime Sile uh, into the aircraft while others later joined. It is unclear the moment uh, when the video was recorded, but some social media users are saying the footage was recorded during the arrest of the former Central Bank of Nigerian governor. And the Department of State Services has finally confirmed that Godwin Imafile 
suspected governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria is in its custody. The Daily Trust newspaper of Nigeria had reported how Emafile believed after he was removed from the top jobs. The agency had tweeted that the top bank chief was not in his custody, attracting mixed reactions. However, earlier today, uh, Peter Afunaya, spokesman of the agency, confirmed that Emafile is in the custody of the Department of State Services. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency uh, was founded in January of 1998 and has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website uh, at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And we'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Well, I too has two trains running.
another man's wife With another man's wife Oh, Lord Sure enough, I done Oh, well with a track entitled uh, Still a Fool, and uh, this is uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And just uh, last weekend, uh, there was a foreign minister's meeting from the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa Summit, the BRICS Summit. We're going to listen to a detailed analysis of the role of BRICS uh, in the contemporary period. Uh, Let's listen in. Foreign ministers of the BRICS Group of Nations have met to discuss expansion and ways to challenge U.S. dominance in the global economy. Could the bloc shift the balance of the world's trade and power, or is it a political pipe dream? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Mohammed Jamjoum. Foreign ministers of the BRICS nations have been meeting in Cape Town with South Africa hosting fellow members Brazil, Russia, India and China. The group began somewhat informally in 2006 with South Africa joining four years later. But in today's more polarized geopolitical world, the BRICS club has become more significant for its members. Some, like Russia, believe it presents a way to forge a new world order, one with less U.S. control. Several countries that sent diplomats to South Africa this week are keen to join the bloc. We'll discuss what's next for BRICS with our guests in a few moments. But first, this report from Michael Apple on what was on the agenda in Cape Town. The foreign ministers of the BRICS Group of Nations have called for a rebalancing of the global order away from the West. They've pointed to sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine and the deepening antagonism between the U.S. and China as factors behind their thinking. Host South Africa has called for more dialogue. We believe the world needs to talk much more. Saying economic as well as political adjustments are needed. We see a world which has faltered in cooperation. We're aware that developed countries have not met their commitments to the developing world and are trying consistently to shift responsibility to the global south. BRICS countries are home to more than 3.2 billion people, around 40% of the global population. None of the bloc's members is in the G7, the group of seven advanced economies. To increase its influence, BRICS is considering bringing new members into the fold. How are you doing? Biological, okay. Okay, surviving. (laughs) 
Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Iran have expressed interest. I believe the enlargement of the BRICS will be beneficial to the BRICS countries, beneficial to developing countries, and to increase the representation influence of this mechanism, and also to uh, garner a bigger uh, power of the BRICS to serve the interests of developed countries. The group accounts for about one-third of global GDP, the impact of U.S. interest rate hikes on members' economies and Western sanctions on Russia have prompted discussions reducing reliance on the U.S. dollar. We had one of the senior executives of the New Development Bank briefing our meeting on work that the bank has been doing, looking at uh, the potential use of alternative uh, currencies to the current uh, internationally traded currencies. The talks in Cape Town were overshadowed by questions about whether Vladimir Putin will attend the leaders' summit in August. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for the Russian president, accusing him of war crimes committed in occupied Ukrainian territory. This creates a diplomatic problem for Pretoria with Western nations saying Putin must be arrested if he lands in South Africa. Michael Apple for Inside Story. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. In Cape Town, Sanusha Naidu, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue, an independent foreign policy think tank. In London, Chris Weifer, chief executive officer at Macro Advisory, a strategic consultancy that operates in the Eurasia region, and in Washington, D.C., Shirley Yu, a political economist and senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Shirley, let me start with you today. So foreign ministers of the BRICS group of nations are presenting themselves as an alternative to the G7, as a counterbalance to the West. Could the bloc actually shift the balance of the world's trade and power, or is this merely a political pipe dream? I think it's entirely likely. Uh, the BRICS countries uh, is expanding as we speak, and 19 more members are looking at joining. But as it stands right now, it represents about 26% of the world's GDP on nominal terms. On PPP basis, it's already a larger economic block than the G7. It represents about 43% of the world's population. It is a substantial global power representing the emerging world. But uh, they are not a rival to the G7 by all means. They are alternative and a complement to the G7. The BRICS bloc, they trade less among themselves than they trade with the G7. And it's hard to imagine today that the BRICS bloc by themselves uh, is going to pull the strings of the global economy without the West. But in the sense of reflecting the interests and desires of the emerging world, I think the BRICS are going to uh, voice uh, more strongly and creating more institutional and multilateral architecture to reflect that desires. Uh, that come from this uh, essentially 43-plus percent of the world's population. Chris, we can't talk about a block like BRICS that Russia is a member of without bringing up the war in Ukraine. So I want to ask you, how much is the Ukraine war driving what is going on internally within BRICS right now? How much is that shaping the agenda? Uh, I think it's been a catalyst, uh, not necessarily the conflict itself, but just everything that has happened around the conflict, uh, particularly the, the sanctions uh, against Russia, what it's done is it, it has created this dialogue within BRICS of the need 
to kind of have a stronger voice, uh, be like a lobbying power against the G7, because a lot of the narrative that you see, uh, for sure, of course, in the Russian media and the Chinese media and elsewhere, is about the fact that the G7 group seem to uh, uh, direct everything, dictate uh, if you like, uh, global policy with regards to economics, with control of the IMF and the World Bank, and also uh, on the environment, uh, etc. And it, that, that has created a lot of uh, resentment in the emerging world amongst BRICS. And, and if you like, the, the, the fact of, of this aggressive sanctions policy has, has accelerated that, that, that debate. So I, I think that's, you know, what we're now looking at in terms of expanding the, the BRICS with more countries is, is not itself directly a consequence of, of the conflict, but it is a consequence of this mm. emerging big picture of the fact that countries feel that they need to have stronger, a stronger voice, a stronger representation in order to, you know, have, have their position feel like taken into account and not just dictated uh, by, by the G7. And, and that's the narrative. Uh, and so the conflict has mm. definitely accelerated that. Sanusha, high on the agenda at this meeting of the foreign ministers of the BRICS nations is the idea of expanding BRICS membership, widening its membership. There have been at least 19 countries, including Saudi Arabia, Iran, the UAE and Indonesia and others that have expressed interest in joining BRICS. So I want to ask you, how likely is it that the group's membership can be expanded in the short term? And what's the prospect of BRICS growing? quickly. Uh, good day, Mohammed. I think it's it's very likely that it will expand expand uh, in the long term. But I think right now, the foreign minister's uh, press briefing, as well as what was mandated from the 14th BRICS summit last year, to try and develop a framework of criteria, standards, principles around how expansion will be managed and what it will entail and who will be qualifying as part of an expanded BRICS membership is something that hasn't really been uh, decided on at this meeting. And, of course, they have until August uh, of this year when the BRICS summit happens in Johannesburg to come up with a framework. So it's actually a work in progress. And I think for, the, for, for now, I think the expansion is really around how will it be defined in terms of the core, the nucleus of the, of the, of the five permanent members of the BRICS, and how that will then evolve in terms of the relationship bringing in uh, other members, as you mentioned, 19 countries, including Saudi Arabia. And I think they are looking towards uh, perhaps other structures where there may be perhaps a two to three year or four year observer status and then a gradual kind of incremental approach to that expansion. I think the bigger challenge for the BRICS right now, the, 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 the five countries, is mm. not to expand too fast because then expanding too fast also means that it may end up in a situation where the, 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 the five countries may have to think about how that will impact on them as mm. the nucleus of the BRICS. So I think these are some of the criteria that will, uh, will, will have to be considered in terms of a model and a framework. Shirley, another thing that's being talked about a lot right now when it comes to BRICS is the possibility of creating a new common currency for international trade as an alternative to the U.S. dollar, also as a way to avoid the impact of sanctions over the war in Ukraine. Uh, this would be known as de-dollarization. I want to ask you about how feasible this is, how easy and or difficult would it be? 
It's it will be feasible, but yes, it'll be a very difficult and complicated process. The BRICS common currency was recently proposed by uh, Brazilian President Lula da Silva, essentially to create a currency uh, by the BRICS block on top of their sovereign currency to be used for the block's trade. And so essentially, uh, correctly, like what you said, Mohammed, not only uh, does uh, the weaponizing the dollar uh, in terms of uh, sanctioning Russia had sent a, a cautionary note to these uh, emerging countries for potential sanctions on themselves, but also the sharply raising U.S. interest rates has made essentially all developing economies extremely vulnerable over the past year to this over-reliance on the U.S. dollar. Not only they have to uh, almost all raise interest rates in order to maintain the stability of the exchange rate, but also they have to pay a higher interest on their dollar debt. And so all of these have called for an acceleration to seek alternatives to uh, the over-reliance on the U.S. dollar in global trade and investments. And so BRICS uh, uh, common currency is going to be, as it stands right now, a currency that's backed by tangible assets. Uh, has, uh, gold has been talked about. Uh, there are precious metals, including rare earth, interest-paying assets. And so the whole concept is also very different from uh, the current understanding of uh, the U.S. dollar being the global reserve currency, which is backed essentially by the faith and credit of uh, the U.S.'s uh, 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 sovereign uh, capacity. And so the whole design, uh, like uh, other speakers have talked about, mm. uh, takes time to be culminated. Uh, you know, in terms of institutional building, there are hard elements and soft elements, uh, mm. economic uh, stability, but also rules and norms and values that are shared by this uh, block is going to be significant. Uh, Chris, uh, let me get your viewpoint on this. Um, you know, trying to unite BRICS member countries fiscally, uh, trying to create some kind of common currency as an alternative to the dollar. I mean, is that, from your point of view, practical? Is that realistic? These are economies that are very different. You have different economies. You have different sure. interest rates. How difficult would this be? Well, look, I think the short answer is extremely difficult and will take a very, very long time. Uh, supporters of the idea do point out to the fact that uh, the European Union uh, did come together. They did create the euro. It took a long time. There were plenty of obstacles. Uh, it's a process that's still continuing, but it was done, and they used that as a model. Now, but as you say, of course, there. You know, that when you look at BRICS and the potential expansion, you know, it's it's a much more globally uh, spread or diverse uh, group of countries geographically uh, as as well as in terms of, of economics. So so considerably more difficult. What we have seen uh, over the last year, year and a half in particular, of course, is Russia doing uh, and China both doing more bilateral trade using their own currencies. But but even here. Uh, Russia, for example, uh, is able to settle debt with the Chinese yuan, but uh, recently the foreign minister has been complaining that there are billions of dollars worth of Indian rupees, uh, which is owned by Russia, which has been used to pay for imported energy, but Russia cannot get it out of India into the Russian economy uh, to, to be used. So I think people had this idealistic view of creating this uh, common currency, like, say, the, the euro, but over, in practice, over the last six to nine months, the obstacles for actually getting that done have become so much clearer. So I would say actually now 
the mood in Moscow is that this is something that they shouldn't be pressing because it's not going to happen too easily. There are more pressing objectives, mm. such as creating kind of trade block or maybe political unit. Creating an alternative currency, it, as far as I can see, has actually slipped down the agenda even over the last six to nine months because of the practical considerations have become more obvious. Sanusha, I asked Chris earlier um, about how much... Uh, Shirley, yeah, go ahead. I think there is a fundamental difference. The BRICS currency is not in the sense uh, the same as the creation of the euro uh, in the sense that there is one common currency for the bloc, which will essentially strip away all the central bank independence, all the sovereign currencies uh, by the five countries, et cetera. It is a common currency that is used in parallel to the sovereign currencies. And so um, I think talking about an EU kind of monetary union, it's entirely unrealistic. And I don't think that's what the BRICS are talking about right now. Sanusha, I had asked Chris earlier. Uh, Chris, let me get back to you in just a minute. Uh, Sanusha, I had asked Chris earlier about how the war in Ukraine was impacting BRICS at this particular moment. I want to ask you about something um, related when it comes to all this to South Africa, because you have these allegations of Russian war crimes having been committed in Ukraine. And as a result, the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin over the allegations of these war crimes. Um, As a member of the court, South Africa would be obliged to arrest Mr. Putin if he attended a BRICS summit scheduled for August in uh, uh, Johannesburg, I believe. So how much of a diplomatic nightmare is all of this for President Cyril Ramaphosa right now? It's a serious predicament because according to our obligations under the Rome Statute, which is domesticated in our uh, legislature, as well as our commitment and obligations under the ICC, is that we have to basically abide by that. There is this question around when does international law prevail over sovereignty, uh, and this is a big challenge I think South Africa is facing and the predicament that the uh, government is, is, is trying to define, because at the moment the challenge is what are their options? Um, if President Putin is to attend the BRICS summit. And again, there's uncertainty around that as well. But if there is to be uh, a BRICS uh, an attendance, then of course, by all means, South Africa has to abide by its international obligations. So again, there are all of these different types of speculation that's emerging around whether South Africa may be thinking of uh, with media reports suggesting that South Africa may be thinking about asking China or another BRICS country that's not a member of the ICC to host the, um, the summit. But again, this will send a mixed signal to the rest of the world, particularly in the fact that this is a summit that's going to be hosted in person after the whole impact of COVID-19. So after last year, where China hosted it online, as a, as a, 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 which was the last time that the summit was hosted online was last year, this time around, it's in person. It, it actually raises a lot of important uh, reputational and symbolicness of the BRICS itself as, a, as, as, as it strengthens internally. So the challenge right now is mm. to what extent there may actually be uh, a question that may be posed to Mr. Putin as to whether mm. he will attend a person or nominate a representative. If mm. I may also just try 
uh, ch ch chime in on this question of the BRICS currency and the issue around there. I think it's also very important to put on, 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 on uh, into this discussion the question of what was adopted last year at the BRICS summit in terms of BRICS pay, a kind of interpayment settlement system in local currency. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a sense that you get when you speak to um, officials from, from the South African side in particular, but also uh, the Sherpas that are involved in this uh, mm -hmm. whole preparation of the bridge, is that there is a caution approach, a cautionary approach to whether you want to create a third global currency that is BRICS, a BRICS mm -hmm. currency. I think right now the bigger challenge for the BRICS is to understand how they reduce transactional mm -hmm. costs and in particular how do they reduce the kind of secondary sanctions that prevail and, caught, and catch them in the sanctions around mm -hmm. the SWIFT also something that is, is, is critical because one of the challenges that the BRICS have brought up is the transactional impact that they face in terms of monetary sovereignty. And I think our, my colleagues are alluding to that in terms of this. So right. I think the, the, the real question for, for, for the summit in, right. in August would be institutionalizing the, the, the aspects of BRICS pay through maybe also uh, digital currency platforms as well. Hmm. Uh, Chris, you wanted to jump in before, so please go ahead. Yeah, well, actually, I can broaden it out a bit and, and to say that um, the the agenda is at Moscow. Moscow is, has a much greater sense of urgency on BRICS than the other countries. You, you could put it like that Russia wants this to happen quickly, uh, wants the expansion to happen quickly, and would very much like to have one currency and one system. And then that's, they're talking about that. China perhaps is further behind, is a lot more patient, would certainly like this to happen, but doesn't want to push it too aggressively. And then you've got the other countries, uh, particularly the, the, shall we call them candidate countries, uh, that want to move uh, much more cautiously because they don't want to create any rift uh, with, uh, with G7, with the US or, or with Europe in terms of trade because uh, these countries' the relationships are much more important. So I, I think, therefore, Moscow's uh, view of BRICS could very well derail this whole kind of ambition if if it chooses to be too aggressive. Mm. Putin definitely wants to go to the, the summit in Johannesburg. Uh, we know from, from Moscow sources that they are putting a lot of pressure on the government in South Africa to find a way mm -hmm. that Putin can attend without him being arrested. For example, talk of changing the law to give sovereign heads of state immunity, etc. Uh, Putin absolutely wants to go because for this summit to be held virtually would, uh, in, in, uh, as from what we hear of, of officials in Moscow, mm -hmm. would kind of suit the effort to create a more powerful uh, and, and more relevant uh, BRICS. So if it were to be held online or if, if Putin had to send a deputy or he couldn't attend, they mm. feel that momentum would be lost. He really wants to go to, to this. Uh, but as I say, I, I think in general, uh, you have uh, Russia really pushing aggressively on a number of fronts. Uh, the currency being won mm -hmm. uh, on, on expansion as quickly as possible right. because Moscow's agenda is differently, uh, as you say, but because of, of the conflict, they want to have this as an alternative body to G7 where, 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 where Russia is, is a member uh, and, and to use that then as some sort of a counterbalance with the West. But I think Russia is now out of step with everybody else. Everybody else wants this to happen on a much more slow, more cautious basis right. than Moscow does.
Uh, surely, uh, we can see just by looking at this conversation thus far how much of a shadow is, is caused by Russia and what's going on in Ukraine is how much that's looming over everything when it comes to BRICS. But, but I want to look for a moment more closely at China. And I want to ask you that, you know, when it comes to developing economies in the world, how big a factor is China currently and, and how much are these economies tied to China? China is uh, roughly two-thirds, over two-thirds of the economic output among the BRICS bloc, and it certainly has a lot of economic sway in terms of trade with the developing world. But in addition to uh, China's uh, economic hard power, I think today it's important also to look at China's efforts in delivering this uh, global institutional building. Uh, bear in mind that the new development bank, which was formerly BRICS Bank, was at, uh, set up in China and is currently headquarters in Shanghai. And so uh, it, China is a, a quintessential component components of uh, this uh, new emerging global architecture on a multilateral basis, uh, and uh, particularly not only, you know, within the, bla uh, the BRICS bloc, but also with Africa, with ASEAN, with Latin America. And I think today, uh, in terms of uh, China's aspirations in developing this global multilateral architecture, we are looking at uh, China being one of the major uh, global economies uh, that's uh, on the cutting edge of uh, launching its own sovereign digital currency. And this uh, multilateral currency platform that will be embraced by the BRICS bloc is not just a currency. It also includes a cross-border uh, currency clearance system as an alternative to the U.S.-led SWIFT. And that's going to be the BRICS pay is going to be very much uh, backed by blockchain technology, decentralized ledger, uh, interoperability. And so all of these uh, technological components have been studied and carefully fully researched and experimented by mm -hmm. China. And I think a lot of these experiences will be shared uh, as, uh, as this whole uh, multilateral architecture starts to take form. Sanusha, I, I want to turn again for a moment to uh, South Africa's role in, in all of this. Um, what is South Africa getting currently out of being a member of BRICS? I mean, what are the advantages uh, of its membership? And, and also, is it vulnerable to pressure from the West to turn away from Russia? I think, you know, South Africa finds itself in these crosswinds because on the one hand, being in the BRICS also kind of elevates the agency that we've been dis discussing around the kind of structural constraints that the international system finds itself in, the deepening geopolitical dimensions, the inflection point, uh, questions around global governance reform. And this has been consistent in terms of South Africa's commitment to multilateralism and also understanding how these different institutions and the global architecture needs to reform or transform in terms of recognizing uh, emerging power blocks and emerging power uh, centers of, of influence in terms of what the BRICS and perhaps other centers of influence in the global south rep represent. In more, in more fundamental terms for South Africa, it's about Africa. It's about the pivot of the African continent and how much agency the African continent has. So utilizing the BRICS in that way is important. There's been a lot of debate about whether South Africa, the economic transactions and benefits of the BRICS compares to its relationship with uh, the, the G7 countries, and in particular the EU and the US, mm -hmm. uh, particularly along the, uh, the fact that these are our bigger markets, that mm -hmm. this is where our trade is much more focused and centralized, and that given the fact that we may not be getting as much uh, uh, transactional value from an economic perspective from the BRICS, then why are we willing mm -hmm. to compromise our position? But I think it's much more than that. It's, it's, it's the intertwining of both the geopolitical 
political and geoeconomic. Mm. And I think for the first time, South Africa is now placed in a very invidious position because it has to test something that international law has not been able to do, and that is arrest a sitting head of state if that head of state attends the BRICS summit. And this is another kind right. of uh, position and predicament that faces the South African government. I think on legislation Senator, that is... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but we, we're, we're running out of time, and I just want to ask one last question to Chris. Chris, we just have about a minute and a half left. If countries like Saudi Arabia or the UAE were to gain membership to BRICS, how does that, how does that change things for the bloc? Uh, it changes it enormously. Uh, I think that BRICS is, is, has been regarded as a kind of a fringe organization, despite the fact, of course, that China and India, the two biggest countries in the world, are in it, but still fringe and regarded as fringe by G7. But if it were to expand significantly with uh, new countries like Saudi and Indonesia that are joining, then it would have to be taken a lot more seriously. And I think this is the whole objective. We put Russia's objective to one side, but if you like China and others, the objective is to have a kind of a more equal voice when it comes to setting the world agenda. Uh, criticism that the mm -hmm. U.S. and Europe dominate big institutions like World Bank, IMF, mm -hmm. the global climate agenda, etc. Uh, you know, these are, we hear these all the time. Having a bigger uh, and more global uh, BRICS means that the G7 countries would have mm -hmm. to discuss these and share more with BRICS. That's the view, I think, that the supporters of a bigger BRIC uh, now have. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Anusha Naidu, Chris Weaver, and Shirley Yu. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Mohammed Jamjoum, and the whole team here, bye for now. The world is changing very quickly. For hundreds of years, Western colonial powers tried to conquer the entire planet. But in the past few decades, we've seen the rise of numerous countries in the global south, in particular China, and the creation of new infrastructure, economic and political institutions to integrate the global south to help develop their economies and create a multipolar world. I just released another episode in which I talked about the expansion of the BRICS block of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and their plans to create a new currency for international trade and to be held in global reserves in order to challenge the dominance of the US dollar. I will link to that in the description below. Today I'm going to be talking about the BRICS Bank, officially known as the New Development Bank. This is a financial institution that was created by the BRICS Bloc in 2014. It officially opened in 2015, and it was created as an alternative to the U.S.-dominated World Bank. The United States is the only country in the world that has veto power over the World Bank and can essentially control the bank and do whatever it wants. I'm going to talk about that later on in the analysis today. The New Development Bank, on the other hand, was created in order to help development in the Global South. Its main goals are funding infrastructure projects, poverty alleviation, 
climate change mitigation, and overall development to help poor, formerly colonized countries in the Global South. Now, I mentioned in the previous episode that the BRICS bloc is discussing expanding, adding new members. Well, the BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, is also planning on expanding. And by the way, it already has expanded. So it includes as current members, the five founders of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Current members also include Bangladesh, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt. And the Latin American nation Uruguay is currently in the process of officially joining. And the BRICS Bank continues to grow. This June, it announced that three more countries will be officially joining as members, including Argentina, Saudi Arabia, and Zimbabwe. This is very important because Saudi Arabia is, of course, one of the world's largest producers of oil, along with Russia. Russia and Saudi Arabia are consistently among the top three oil producers in the entire world. So having both of them part of the BRICS bank and eventually the BRICS itself will show how the BRICS block is becoming a commodities powerhouse. This will overlap with already existing organizations like OPEC, and it will show how these countries will have significant influence in global commodities markets and won't be dominated simply by the Western powers. But furthermore, this expansion is important because it shows that the BRICS and the BRICS Bank are looking to get more partners in Africa and Latin America. Of course, Zimbabwe is in Africa, Argentina is in South America. So BRICS will not j simply be a Eurasian institution with the ma major Eurasian powers of China, Russia, India, but also further expand into other parts of the global south. This is also extremely important because of the growing move toward de-dollarization in many countries around the world. Saudi Arabia has been one of the key players in maintaining the petrodollar system since an agreement was signed in 1974 between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Riyadh agreed to sell all of its oil in dollars and this helped maintain an international demand for dollars after the U.S. government under Richard Nixon removed the dollar from its link to gold in 1971, and the U.S. dollar became a freely floating fiat currency. So in order to maintain global demand for the dollar, Saudi Arabia agreed to sell its oil in dollars, which being the world's largest oil producer at the time and the de facto leader of OPEC, the oil producing organization. This meant that many countries around the world that needed to import oil needed to get access to dollars, maintaining this artificial demand, which is what has allowed the United States for decades, among other factors, to maintain a massive trade deficit with the rest of the world, a current account deficit, so the U.S. can suck in the surplus value of other countries and import much more than it exports without facing inflation and the devaluation of its currency. However, as Saudi Arabia integrates further into the BRIC system, that means that it's likely going to sell its oil in other currencies, including the Chinese renminbi, leading to discussion of the petro yuan. Yuan, by the way, is the name of the unit of account of the Chinese currency, the renminbi. Meanwhile, another major producer of oil and gas, which is the United Arab Emirates, 
which is already a member of the BRICS bank and has applied to join the BRICS block itself, the UAE is already selling its liquefied natural gas to China in Chinese yuan. So as the BRICS system expands and it fuels de-dollarization, this is going to be a massive blow to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar and the petrodollar system that undergirds U.S. economic hegemony. Now, this is something that the BRICS itself is openly speaking of. Brazil's leftist president, Lula da Silva, has given many speeches talking about the importance of creating a new currency, challenging the hegemony of the U.S. dollar, not only within the BRICS itself, but also within South America. Lula is overseeing the process of creating a regional currency for trade to remove the middleman of the U.S. dollar. But furthermore, in the New Development Bank, the BRICS Bank, there is also significant discussion of de-dollarization. This March, the BRICS Bank announced its new president is Dilma Rousseff, the former president of Brazil from the same left-wing workers' party of Brazil's current president, Lula da Silva. Dilma Rousseff has made it clear that the BRICS Bank is moving toward de-dollarization and plans in the next few years to give nearly one-third of its loans in other currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Rousseff first made this announcement back in April in an interview with the Chinese media. At the same time, it is necessary to find ways to avoid foreign exchange risk and other issues such as being dependent on a single currency such as the U.S. dollar. The good news is that we are seeing many countries choosing to trade using their own currencies. China and Brazil, for instance, are agreeing to exchange with RMB and the Brazilian real. At the NDB, we have committed to it in our strategy. For the period from 2022 to 2026, NDB has to lend 30% in local currency, and so 30% of our loan book will be financed in the currencies of our member countries. That will be extremely important to help our countries avoid exchange rate risks and shortage in finance that hinder long-term investments. Now, Dilma Rousseff made it clear there that there are several reasons why the New Development Bank is seeking alternatives to the U.S. dollar. First is that by constantly relying on the U.S. dollar, this really hurts countries in the global south that have fluctuating exchange rates. What does this mean? So every time you exchange your currency, if you're a country like Brazil, which has its currency, the real, when they exchange for dollars, it weakens their currency and strengthens the U.S. currency. So when they're trading in the U.S. currency, it actually helps the United States, strengthens its economic power and weakens the currency of Brazil. Because most of the time when a country is importing, it's, those imports are invoiced in dollars, so they exchange for dollars. However, another important factor here is that the U.S. domestic monetary policy has an impact on the rest of the world. In the United States, there's been a lot of consumer price index inflation. And in order to ostensibly stop that inflation, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the central bank, has been aggressively raising interest rates. The real goal, as the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, said, is to reduce wages and increase unemployment to create an, an artificial economic crisis which weakens the power of workers 
and strengthens the power of capital, and that's their way of bringing down inflation, always putting the burden on workers trying to decrease their wages and their, their power in the economy. However, while the U.S. has been aggressively raising interest rates, that has had an impact on the global economy because the dollar is the global reserve currency used for much of international trade. What that means is that as the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates, it actually strengthens the value of the dollar against other currencies. And what that means is that other countries' central banks also need to raise interest rates if they don't want their currency to be significantly devalued, which will artificially create an economic crisis in their country as well. So this has pressured many global South economies, especially those that are heavily reliant on imports of things like energy and fertilizer and food and technology. It has put downward pressure on their currencies, which are partially being devalued, which makes it even more expensive to import and also more expensive to pay off dollar-denominated debt that many of these countries are trapped in with U.S.-dominated organizations like the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank. And the New Development Bank is particularly important here because it is an alternative to the World Bank, which has a history of trapping Global South countries in debt like this. Furthermore, it also leads to capital flight often because people who are invested in emerging markets in places like Brazil, they might simply withdraw their capital and invest it back in the United States or hold it in you know, different investment funds because now they're going to get a higher return because of the rising interest rate. So the point is, this is referred to as Triffin's Dilemma because when the United States has its own domestic monetary policy, it doesn't just impact the United States. It impacts the entire world because the dollar is the global reserve currency. This is one of many ways in which the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar hurts everyone. The United States is the only country that benefits, and not even workers in the United States, as I pointed out. It's large corporations and billionaires who benefit from these policies. Finally, another important factor to mention is sanctions. Many countries in the Global South are afraid of being sanctioned unilaterally, illegally, by the United States. Currently, more than one-third of the global population lives in countries that are already sanctioned by the U.S., and Washington is constantly threatening to expand that. So countries in the BRICS, the New Development Bank, are seeking alternatives to the U.S. dollar as well, because that means that if they create new financial architecture, new mechanisms for trade and for holding different currencies in their international reserves, they can't be threatened by Western sanctions. The U.S. can't simply steal their foreign exchange reserves like the U.S. has stolen billions and billions of dollars in the foreign exchange reserves of Venezuela, Iran, Afghanistan, and Russia. This all explains why the BRICS and the BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, are prioritizing de-dollarization. It's not happening overnight. It's a slow, gradual process, but it's picking up steam. And the president of the New Development Bank, Dilma Rousseff, made it clear in the annual meeting that the NDB held on May 30th and May 31st that de-dollarization is a priority. She reiterated that the goal is by 2026 to have 30%, nearly one-third 
of the bank's loans denominated in other currencies. And this is already happening, by the way. As of 2023, 22% of the NDB's loans are already denominated in other currencies. And the NDB has given out billions of dollars of bonds that are denominated in yuan. These are known as panda bonds. This is These are bonds given out by a non-Chinese institution in the Chinese currency. So we're seeing significant changes. In this annual meeting on May 30th and May 31st, Dilma Rousseff said, quote, we need to create a diversified global currency system. In the future, it is unlikely that one single currency can dominate the world's currency system. We will see more local currencies used to settle trade. This point is absolutely crucial because what we're seeing is the gradual de-dollarization in particular of trade, in particular of commodities trading. So one of the points that defenders of U.S. dollar hegemony have frequently made, which has an element of truth to it, is that the U.S. dollar is still the most popular by far currency used for investments, in particular for central banks around the world holding their foreign exchange reserves in U.S. dollar denominated assets like treasuries, which are historically a relatively secure investment, although with the politicization of the U.S. dollar and the U.S. seizing the foreign exchange reserves of countries like Russia, it's become much less secure over time. However, even that argument is exaggerated. As the prominent economist Stephen Jen has pointed out, and he was previously a currency analyst at the U.S. investment bank Morgan Stanley, he pointed out in his research this April that when you adjust for price changes, the U.S. dollar share of the foreign exchange reserves held by central banks around the world has declined from 73% in 2001 to 47% as of 2022, less than half of global reserves. So even the decline in the holding of dollars in reserves is happening much more rapidly than many people thought. Although I would again emphasize that I think we're going to see more significant decline and more rapid decline in the use of the dollar in international trade. We're already seeing the use of many different currencies in regional trade between Russia and Iran, Russia and India, Russia and China. Of course, Russia is driving a lot of this because of the Western sanctions on Russia. So as we see the global de-dollarization trend grow, and as we see BRICS expand and the BRICS bank expand, it's going to go hand in hand with more and more de-dollarization and the move toward a multipolar currency world. That mainstream economist I mentioned, Stephen Jen, who was a currency analyst at the investment bank Morgan Stanley, he recently did an interview in which he said this very clearly, quote, more likely we will evolve from a unipolar reserve currency world to a multipolar world. And when he said unipolar reserve currency, he meant, of course, the United U.S. dollar. In fact, the mainstream financial press in the West has been admitting this fact that we are in an increasingly multipolar world. The chair of the editorial board of the Financial Times, Gillian Tett, told investors in March that they should, quote, prepare for a multipolar currency world. And the Financial Times is 
the leading financial newspaper in the West. It is probably the most influential financial media outlet. And they're acknowledging this fact. That was not the only time either. Back in January, the well-known, very prominent economist, Sultan Potsar, wrote an article in which he said that the unipolar era of U.S. hegemony is over. And he said the world is increasingly multipolar. Potsar added that, quote, the pace of de-dollarization appears to have picked up, especially as BRICS countries and BRICS curious countries de-dollarize their trade. And Sultan Posar wrote, quote, if less trade is invoiced in U.S. dollars and there is a dwindling recycling of dollar surpluses into traditional reserve assets such as treasuries, that is U.S. treasury bonds, that's U.S. government debt, the exorbitant privilege that the U.S. dollar holds as the international reserve currency could be under assault. These are not Russian government officials or Chinese government officials. These are very established mainstream economists and analysts in the West writing in the, the mainstream Western financial press acknowledging this fact. However, many people in the Western political class refuse to wake up to this reality. They have their head in the sand and that's why the U.S. is so insistent on expanding its new Cold War on China and Russia to prevent the decline of the hegemony of the U.S. empire and prevent the rise of the global south and particularly China. Now, finally, before I conclude here, I want to briefly talk about the World Bank and why countries in the BRICS have created an alternative because the reality is that the World Bank is not a world bank. It's actually Washington's bank. The World Bank is based physically in Washington, D.C., and the World Bank states very clearly on its website that the United States, quote, remains the largest shareholder of the World Bank group today, and it even boasts, quote, as the only World Bank Group shareholder that retains veto power over certain changes in the bank structure, the United States plays a unique role in influencing and shaping global development priorities. So the United States is the only country on earth that has veto power in the World Bank. The U.S. basically controls the World Bank. The World Bank website points out, it boasts once again, quote, Traditionally, the World Bank president has always been a U.S. citizen nominated by the United States. Again, the World Bank is actually not correctly named. It is the Washington Bank. All we have to do is look at the voting power of different countries inside the World Bank, specifically the World Bank Group's lending arm, which is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the IBRD. When people talk about the World Bank, they're almost always talking about the IBRD. And if you look at it, the United States has roughly 16% voting power, which is significantly more than any other country. The second biggest is Japan with 7% voting power. China has less than 6% voting power, despite having a population of 1.4 billion people, more than four times the U.S. population. Even Germany a major U.S. ally only has 4% voting power. So the U.S. has four times the voting power of Germany. Britain has less than four. India, with a population of 1.4 billion people, is tied with France, 
which has a population of less than 66 million people, each has 3.8% voting power in the World Bank. The BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, is not like this. There is not one country in the BRICS Bank that has complete control. There is no country that has veto power. And in the 2014 founding agreement made it very clear that the president of the bank shall be elected from one of the founding members on a rotational basis. So it changes between Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It also said in the founding agreement that the vice president must be from another founding member to make sure that there is more democracy. And it made it clear that the initial subscribed capital that was used to found the bank in 2014 shall be equally distributed among the founding members and the voting power of each member shall equal its subscribed shares in the capital stock of the bank, which is equally shared. So when the BRICS developed the New Development Bank, when they created this as an alternative to the World Bank, they wanted to make sure that it did not mirror the problems in the creation of the World Bank itself because it's dominated by the United States. They wanted to create a true alternative to that. And the World Bank itself was born in the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference that established also the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and established the dollar as the global reserve currency, giving Washington its exorbitant privilege. So it's no surprise that the Washington Bank, I mean the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund are dominated by the U.S. because they are part of the same Bretton Woods structure that put the U.S. dollar at the heart of the global financial system. And none of this is to mention the fact that the World Bank, along with the IMF, has a history of trapping countries in the global south in unpayable debt and then forcing political reforms on those countries, demanding that they impose a series of harsh right-wing neoliberal economic policies as part of the so-called structural adjustment programs, which includes forcing countries to privatize state assets, reduce the minimum wage, cut social services, reduce spending on health care and education, privatize all you know, state-owned companies, deregulate markets. These are the neoliberal right-wing economic policies, the free market fundamentalist policies that are imposed on countries, especially in the global south, when they can't pay back debt to the World Bank or the IMF. The New Development Bank, the BRICS Bank, does not require the same political conditionalities of free market fundamentalism like the Bretton Woods institutions do. And a former consultant who worked with the World Bank, John Perkins, he spelled this all out very clearly in his well-known book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He described the World Bank as, quote, an agent of global empire. And he explained how the World Bank is part of an infrastructure dominated by the United States, along with the IMF and the so-called U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. And together, these institutions cheat poor countries in the global south out of trillions of dollars, and they funnel money into the coffers of huge corporations and the pockets of a few wealthy families who control the planet's natural resources. John Perkins said that economic hitmen 
at the World Bank and other U.S.-dominated institutions play a game as old as empire. This is imperialism. This is the reality of how the U.S.-led imperialist system functions. And that's why countries in the Global South are trying to create new alternatives. The BRICS is one of those alternatives, although it's probably the most significant, but it's one of many. Latin America has its alternative uh, political organizations for regional integration like UNASUR and CELAC, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, which are being strengthened. Latin America has the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of the Americas, which is an alternative economic alliance. Latin America is working on building its own new infrastructure to create a new regional currency. Africa has institutions like the African Union, and there were attempts by leaders like Libya's former leader Muammar Gaddafi, who wanted to create a pan-African currency backed by gold until he was killed in the NATO war in 2011 that destroyed Libya as a functioning central state. In Southeast Asia, there's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. In Eurasia, there is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes China, India, Russia, and Pakistan, and Iran just joined. These are all part of a major historic shift in the world, and power is moving away from the Western colonial powers that have dominated the world for hundreds of years since the rise of European colonialism, and power is shifting back to the global south where the majority of the global population lives. And here at Geopolitical Economy Report, I report on this regularly. I'm Ben Norton, the editor. And if you like the work that we do, please subscribe on whatever platform you're watching or listening on, whether it's YouTube or if you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe. It helps to promote our material in the algorithm. And if you also want to support our work, we're completely independent. Please consider going to geopoliticaleconomy.com slash support. And there are multiple ways to support us. The best way is you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash geopoliticaleconomy. And that really helps go a long way. We have no big sponsors. We have no institutional support. We rely entirely on small donations from listeners and viewers. I want to thank everyone. If you want to get access to all of the links to all of the sources that I mentioned in my analysis today, in the description below, I also have a link to an article at geopoliticaleconomy.com. It has all of the sources so you can fact check me. Again, I want to thank everyone. I'm Ben Norton. This is Geopolitical Economy Report. I will see you next time.
Hello there. This is Lauren Schoenberg talking to you in March 2020, getting ready to share an interview from 1984 uh, that I had the great honor of doing with Milt Jackson and Ray Brown. They were in town to do a gig downtown and also were doing a, an appearance in Harlem and they came by WKCR to talk about it. The reason that Milt Jackson was there first and Ray Brown came in later was that he was trying to park the car, which is still hard to do uh, in that part of Manhattan near Columbia. Right before the interview began, I remember asking Milt Jackson, you know, whether I could call him Mr. Jackson, which is what I called him naturally. And he said, no, call me Milt. And I did. And there's a certain kind of informality that on the one hand almost seems uh, inappropriate in a way for a guy in his early 20s. Uh, to be talking to uh, musicians of that stature. But that was the genre of that kind of interview at that time. Nonetheless, uh, you'll get to hear these two masters talking at length about their early days. I treasured it then, I treasure it now, and I'm so happy to be able to share it. Not the first time, but I'd like to welcome you back anyway to WKCR. Milt. Oh, nice to be here. Thanks so much for making the effort to come up. We know you're busy down at the Blue Note. I believe you opened last night. Right. And uh, down there with uh, Mickey Roker, Ray Brown. And, uh, is Cedar Walton with you? Yes, he is. Yeah, what a, yes. what a band. All-star quartet at the Blue Note. I think he'll be there through Saturday. Through Sunday. Through Sunday. Sure. All right, so everybody should have plenty of an opportunity to get down to 131 West 3rd Street and check out the great Milt Jackson, Ray Brown. Man, we were listening at the beginning of that set to uh, Lester Liebson from Jazz at the Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall with Ray Brown is on that record, and that's why we had spun it, and we got to hear a little bit of Lester Young's solo. We faded that down and went to Milt's new record on the Pablo label called Soul Root with Gene Harris on piano in addition to Mickey Roker and Ray Brown. And, Milt, when we were sitting here in the studio listening to Lester Young, I thought you had some beautiful things to say about Prez, and I was wondering maybe you could just tell me again what you were telling me oh, while sure, we were listening sure. to that. Oh, uh, on occasion when I do, uh, you know, workshops and seminars, uh, he's one of my prime examples about certain things in terms of sound and playing notes. Uh, and uh, as far as improvising, you know, jazz music, uh, he is fantastic at just taking this one note and getting the most from it in terms of sound and feeling. Yeah. You know, first of all, I think those, are, to me, are the most important ingredients in playing jazz music, the kind of music we uh, come from. And uh, if you don't get a sound, first of all, then you don't have to really be that con concerned about the feeling because the feeling won't mean nothing if you don't have a sound. That's right. You know, so uh, to me, uh, that comes first. Yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, as a kid, when I went to hear the basic band in the field early days, I'm talking about 30s, you know, when they first hit 38, right. 39, back then. Yeah. Tell you folks. <laughs> <laughs> but to go and hear those uh, guys play those solos, you know, less than Hershey Levens, who a lot of people don't know because he already died right. uh, many years ago. Yeah. And uh, to hear those solos, but that's the young man. It was just so marvelous at playing one note and getting yeah. the best feeling from it. And that great time feeling he had, too. Uh, not too many people. You well, know, he started out as a drummer, uh, from what I understand, you know, yeah. originally, yes. 
I think his, his brother was a drummer. I think Lee uh, Young. Something like, oh, yeah. Yeah, his yeah, brother's a drummer. Right. Yeah. That's the voice of Milt Jackson. Again, we want to tell you Milt Jackson has made it up to WKCR on the Musician's Show. It's 13 minutes after 8 o'clock. And uh, we're doing something special here at the radio station in a couple of weeks. We're producing a special that I believe they're calling Harlem Week. And it's we've had a lot of musicians up here. I believe Big Nick Nicholas was up yesterday doing an interview about his day. That I think it was the Celebrity Club that Big Nick was at. I'm not sure. No, the Paradise. The Paradise, right, where he used to run all those sessions, and we're getting yeah. a lot of background. And I know, Milt, you, I believe you, you're you from Detroit, and Dizzy did, did Gillespie heard you out there. Yeah, right. Uh, in the World, World, World War II days, if I'm not mistaken, then you joined that all-star band. Yeah, this was 1945. 1945. It's hard to believe looking at you. You don't look like you could be that old. Oh, gee, thanks. You're welcome. But... Uh, of course, you were in that great band that went out to Billy Berg's with with Ray Brown and and Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker, and Stan Charlie Levy, Parker, Stan Levy, and Al Haig. Al Haig, and uh, then he uh, he hired Lucky Thompson, who was who was already on the coast at the time. Yeah, and along with Howard McGee. Yeah, and that was such a a piece of jazz history, and uh, and uh, yes, it was. And you see, the club owner, uh, in order to fulfill the contract. You know, did he hired Lucky because uh, he wasn't sure about birds. You know, the bird might not show up at night, that kind of thing. At, uh, and uh, he had Lucky there to cover for the man, you know. Yeah. But, and you're talking about an incredible experience musically every single night. Yeah. Just listening to Charlie Parker, you know. I turned my back on the audience, you know, because uh, I had, uh, you know, not out of disrespect, sure. Matt, but... Uh, I was just so in awe of Bird, man. I just had to see and hear what he was doing, you know. Yeah, being on, being on the same bandstand with that must have been something. Because it was just absolutely fantastic to hear the things he played, you know, because, you know, yeah. it's hard. Because, you know, everything may not catch the, uh, the ear of the, the layman listener right away, but you go back and hear it again. And each time you hear something different, man, it's astounding. Yeah. I can imagine that must have been quite an inspiration at such an early age, being thrust into that all of a sudden. The oh, man, listen, we'd go home after the gig, Ray and I. We'd practice all day, man. We'd practice all day, 16, 17 hours, until it was time to go to work that next night. Yeah. You know, because we just, we're just full of ideas musically. And this is the way that you get your ideas out. You sure. practice on them. Yeah. Well, such a... Amazing number of topics Mel, I'd like to talk with you about, and I realize we, we have maybe half an hour, 45 minutes tonight, but I'd like to invite you back right now some other time and spend three hours and get into some detail, because I've got a lot of recordings I'd like you to hear. But this evening, I'm wondering if we could talk a bit uh, about Harlem and when you first came to New York and what the scene was like as a community and as a musical center at that time and what the feeling was like up there in the oh. 40s. Oh, boy, can I ever tell you. Uh, it was really most fascinating, you know, because Dizzy lived there. Well, all the musicians, uh, all the great lived uptown, you know, uh, anyway. And uh, when I first came t uh, to New York, I stayed at Dizzy's house on 7th Avenue for three weeks. And this is when he hired, uh, he'd already hired Ray, okay? And that's when I met Ray, and we both went to Washington, which, by the way, was the very first gig, Washington, D.C. Yeah. Along with uh, uh, Dizzy. Uh, myself, Ray, uh, Max Roach, and Charlie Rouse. 
Yeah. That was the very first gig, okay? And when we got back to New York after that engagement, then he got bird, and we went right out to California. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit now. I guess you came to New York a little bit after those uh, legendary days at Minton's and Monroe's. Or, or oh, no, 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 no. After, man, you got to be kidding. I first came to New York on a weekend pass out of the service. I was down in Camp Patrick in Virginia for a weekend. Okay, man, that was the most fascinating weekend I've, I've ever seen in, in New York. And it was my first visit to New York, you know. So I immediately went back to Detroit. I got out the service and I stayed for a few months and uh, organized a little group around there. And after we worked for a few months around there, uh, I got this offer from Dizzy. And I just packed up and left Detroit. And this is in 1945, okay? Now, I came to the clubs, man, and you had uh, people like uh, Art Tatum, where it was known as holding class after work up at the Hollywood Bar, up on 7th and, you know, 134th Street. And all the musicians that I had heard about, ever heard about, man, they were working someplace around New York, or if not on the road with the band, you know. Then the Savoy Ballroom. Man, you just thought, what, did I missed that? Oh, man, you got to be kidding. And the Playhouse, Monday night, it was like the thing today, the, uh, I can only compare it in terms of the charisma or the enthusiasm, you know, not the audience, because... It's a much bigger audience. Like the people are, uh, uh, they're doing trying to get Michael Jackson tickets, for example, right? Okay. Well, we had Monday night sessions when it was known that Bird and Dizzy were going to jam that night. You had to fight to to get yourself a seat on Monday night, you know. And if you got up, the ladies, it didn't apply so much to the ladies, but the men. You got up to go to the bathroom, you lost your seat. You come back to get that seat back, you had to fight some guy because he moved in it and he's not about to move. Yeah. Oh, no, man. That, that's one of the most beautiful experiences, that, 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 you know, and all right mm -hmm. uptown. Mm -hmm. Small paradise. Yeah. Oh, man. Every, every club, the Elks, Rendezvous, uh, Bowman, all those places. And what happens is, man, you had live music, okay, number one. Number two, all of those music, uh, musicians were still most of the innovators that you've heard right. through the years. How was it that you wound up to be on that great session Coleman Hawkins made with You Go to My Head and Cocktails for Two? Uh, do you remember that record? Those records with Hawk? Yeah. In 1946 yeah. With, ha with Hank Jones and Max Roach. and, yeah. and all were, were you working with Hawk at that time? Or was no. it just a record? No, I had never worked with me and Hank Jones again except for jam sessions. Yeah. You know, but uh, um, the company they asked me what, what I like to record with Coleman Hawkins, you know. And, sure. And you know what I said, <laughs> you know, what time do we start? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Because see, I missed the chance also to record with Duke. You know, there was not one opp one opportunity that I had, but in the course of bookings, he had to leave and go someplace, and we never got to reschedule. Which is also why I just want to mention the fact that I, I did not pass up the chance to record the one with Basie. With Basie. Okay? That's also unique. I don't know if you know this. I was the first guest instrumentalist that recorded with the band. That's right. You know, but before it was always only a vocalist. That's right. You know, so those are great records there, too. So, uh, you know, I have a very proud feeling about that. Yeah. I don't, along the same lines, in case you're interested, I don't know if you know, Milt, but uh, somebody put a record out, and I don't know how you feel about these 
records when they put out broadcasts and all that kind of stuff. But someone found something of the MJQ with Lester Young and Miles Davis when you guys were in tour in 1957. Okay, that would have to be in Europe when right. you were with the Birdland All Stars. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's that's some great sure. stuff to hear you all together. Because that's when we we toured together. You know, I'm sure they recorded every note someplace, man, because they all had recorders in and the little recorders. And somebody eventually would try and produce this, man, because, you know, you got all of the new electronic equipment now where you can take out noises and right. and that kind of thing and produce a fairly good record from those days. Yeah. So uh, this is what's always being done somewhere. Yeah. You were naming some places before when we were talking about those early days when you first came to town in the 1940s up in Harlem, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate about the uh, particular atmosphere and some of the things that were going on and some of your favorite places to hang out and maybe some places that we don't know about because people don't talk about them anymore, besides Mitten and Monroe's, which people talk about. But what were some of the other musicians' hangouts? Well, the Savoy, like I said. Um, the, the Elks Rendezvous. Elks Rendezvous. Yeah, that was one. Where, where was that? 133rd and Lenox Avenue. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it was uh, also very popular. You know, it had bands and groups coming in all the time. Small's Paradise was also very, very popular. Mm-hmm. 135th and 7th Avenue. i stories about the late night sessions and gigs that started when the other bands got off and practiced dances. That was at Monroe's. Could you tell us what uh, that Monroe's was about? Monroe's House. Yes, I can tell you about that. Please That's please. how I earned my 802 card. I couldn't work enough gigs. You know, you could only work one gig at a time. You know, that there were stipulations, of course, and make a steady gig. And the way I made enough money to finally get my 802 car, we're working in, in Clark Monroe after after our joint uptown, 134th Street, right just off 7th Avenue. Hope it doesn't sound naive to you, Mel, but for someone that wasn't there, what what was an after-hours joint? I mean, what Okay, what was the it? regular licensed nightclubs right. closed at 4 o'clock in the morning. Okay, the after hour club is the club that opens after the regular clubs close. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's what it was. I see. And it also had live music, just like the regular uh, nightclub, though. You see, and the guys come in would come down and jam all morning. As you mentioned, all the musicians you heard about were in New York, you know, all the Giants, Tatum and Coleman Hoggins and Duke Ellington. And what was it like uh, in Harlem in those days? How were the musicians regarded as members of the community? Whereas now, you probably, it would be hard to get a, uh, arrested if you're walking down the street in Harlem. I don't think, I don't know how many people would recognize musicians now, the jazz musicians. But back in those days, were the jazz, were the musicians kind of special people in the community and were they treated oh, with yeah, respect? Oh, yeah, we all lived all together as, as a. Uh, yeah, whatever section. There was always a great musician in that section of the town, mm-hmm. from 110th Street all the way up to 155th Street and beyond. Mm-hmm. This was like the uh, well, the radius, I guess you say, of most of the uh, musicians that I had met. Mm-hmm. You know, and whatever neighborhood, you know, always one of the musicians that was well known, you know, and well liked. Oh, and something else, man. I can't. I don't know, how could I possibly sit here and leave out the Apollo? Course, you know, which is not too far from where we are right now. That is where all the bands and a lot of people got started, as you know, through the amateur hour and sure. all. And that's also very, very legendary. They, you know, they've tried to revive it here recently, too, man. And, and it's just, to me, uh, personally, it's just a shame, man, that they can't. When I say a shame, man, I mean 
people like the government. If it was real funds appropriate to keep something like that like really then that's all it takes. That's right. You know, um the symphonies. Let's take let's take the major symphonies in the country, which America idolizes. And I'm not against it either, you know. But it was always taken care of, in other words, through subscriptions. They had members. They subscribed to it whether they went or not. And man, something I discovered, half of them didn't go. Now, in playing with symphonies a lot because of the type of music, you know, what the MJQ plays, right? You know the way that means we play many concerts with symphonies and mm -hmm. string quartets and classical musicians as well. Those people in the audience would go to sleep before we came on because usually the symphony played the first half and then we, the second half of the program, we would come out. Okay. And those people would fall asleep during that first half of the program. Yeah. I remember a very special one of the first concerts I went to was the MJQ with the Juilliard String Quartet, and I'll never forget that. You did that piece with the tempo uh, fat where it went slower and faster with nobody conducting it. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. That was amazing. Milt Jackson, our guest on the Musician Show here, 26 minutes after 8 o'clock. You're talking about the uh, different areas of Harlem where there was always a musician. Maybe you could tell us about some of the different neighborhoods that were within Harlem in those days and some of the musicians that you associated with those parts, like Monk was from the what the San Juan Hill area or something. Well, it was, it was sort of, yeah, different though. Monk was raised down around 63rd Street. Right. And it, it weren't uh, an overabundance, I would say, of blacks in that neighborhood uh, in those years. Mm -hmm. You know, this is why I say the majority of the musicians, you know, Dizzy, you know, right in the middle of Harlem, you know, because this is where it was. Yeah. When did you first play the the Apollo Theater? I also meant to ask. I played, first played the Apollo with Dizzy, it, uh, Dizzy's Big Man, 1946. How did the Apollo audiences react to Dizzy's music? Did they love it? Oh, yes, they, they loved it. Yes, indeed. And what was good, it was a, um, um, the Apollo, the audience, in other words, is really like a training ground. In other words, you got over. If you weren't good, they knew and they let you know, in other words. You get plenty of booze and you know Wasn't there uh, a guy named Puerto Rico? Right. That used to swing that down? was amateur night. Was okay. Amateur night. If you're not getting over and the crowd starts booing, he comes out with a little came out with a little hula type skirt <laughs> and a pistol with blanks and shot you all right off the stage. <laughs> yeah. Cruel sure. but, right. but it probably helped a lot right. of people. Sure. Yeah. Sure seems to me then Dizzy's band Jazz, it was part of the entertainment industry more than it is now. In other words, you're playing at the Apollo Theater as part of an, ent an entertainment package with, with Dusty Fletcher or with whatever comedians were on the bill at that time, whereas now Jazz okay, has been separated. Okay, but funny, man, as great as those productions were, and you're talking about entertainment. Say where, man, I mean, I think I mean, it's been sabotaged. Uh those same shows we're talking about now at the Apollo with all the entertainment. Now, there's a variety of entertainment to please any audience now, okay? Right. Because it's a whole complete variety. There's a singer, there's even dancers, even a, a tap dancers, okay? Plus, even a chorus if necessary, and then the band, okay? Now, they tell us, man, well, you know, we can't use jazz on television because, you know, jazz is too sophisticated. It's too cool to sit and watch, you know? Well, see, they didn't realize... Jazz music is serious. You don't have time to do too much clowning and acting crazy while you're playing that music. Right. You know? And this is a way for them to ease it around, hiring blacks for television productions and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I, 
One thing was the fact that some of the earlier giants of jazz, like Duke or or Louis Armstrong or whoever, Fats Waller or or even Dizzy, you know, uh, have incorporated showmanship into their presentation. Of course, when it comes to the music, it's 101% music and that's it. But they were able to incorporate showmanship into their act so that people could relate to them, I guess. Uh, Harlem changed over the years. Of course, the Harlem now in 1984 is certainly a different one from the one you first saw during World War II. And uh, I'm wondering, Mill Jackson, if you have any ideas on what made that change and what the, di- what the different well, things were that led to that change. You know, it's really hard to really just pinpoint that. But, you know, life goes on and all It's a passes, big question, I know. And time moves, okay? Nothing stands still. Okay, um... The days I'm talking about, okay, as far as be, as a black, it was days of poverty, man, where you really struggle, okay? So one of the first things you do in terms of trying to alleviate the struggle is when you make enough money, you leave the neighborhood and go to a better one, okay? This is eventually what happened. All right, all of the money that, that had been invested into uh, the uh, nightclubs and whatnot, we, as blacks per se, still didn't own them. Most of those were just, uh, we, we just plotted, as we say. Mm-hmm. You know, use the name. But we are not the ones that, that made the, made, really made the money. You see? Okay, I say that to say, none of the money, this applied to 52nd Street, by the way, also, which was also a very fascinating thing. If I have a minute or two left, I want to tell you about it. We got time. Um, now, none of the money is reinvested in that. So all the revenue that's going in, it, when it comes out, is not being put back. So there's no kind of turnover, right? None. Mm-hmm. Same thing, 52nd Street, man. I watched them just methodically destroy it because as fast as they made the money, they took it elsewhere. You know? Okay, so we got no backing. You know? Now, okay, look at today's thing. Michael Jackson has achieved something that no other, no other black has ever done, okay? So, okay, as a black, you got to be proud of that, you know, because he's worked hard, and he's done that for a long time. Don't forget that uh, he's still a youngster to me. He's done that, though, since he was, like, five years old, you know? Sure. That's good. Okay, but now stop and think about it. If we had had any part of that type of promotion when our music was good, when all of those great jazz creators and innovators were living, man, you know, your kids would walk, to school in the morning singing Charlie Parker solos, yours and mine. Mm-hmm. Not just that simple. Another thing, this music lends to intelligence as far as the mind goes, okay? All right, if this music brings you your mind and your head together and, all of the, and your heart through the music, then it's a threat to the gut because now they can't really control you. You know, they got to really be able to control you. Now, let me tell you about the rock music and all. It's fine, and, all, and I don't, hey, I, you can't knock it, that's progress. But this would still be today's music. A lot of innovators would still be alive, and it would be very much in the eyes of the whole entire world. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's Milt Jackson with some very deep ideas. Thanks for sharing them with us. And uh, as I mentioned before, I'd like to offer an invitation to have you up here again, spend three hours so we can get in, into some more depth. You mentioned 52nd Street. Did you work on 52nd Street with this? Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Now, the first time I went to jam with Charlie Parker, because Dizzy had come back to New York, by the way, and told Bird about me, you know, which I'll never, never forget, of course. Yeah. All right? And when I went, 
He say, man, you got to hear this cat play. Let him play when he comes come to, to sit in, you know, because you know, I've never heard no vibes like this, all right? There, it was a black man also that was the manager of the club. This was the only club owned by a black in New York, by the way, mm-hmm. okay? He put me out, okay? He said, no, man, you guys no jam I said, well, but, and Bird argued with him for, man, 15 minutes. He argued with the man to let me come here. I said, man, get that instrument out of here. We don't have that. A year later, Ray, who just walked in, folks, <laughs> he'll take over in a minute. And I were featured. They had a big sign-up, you know, Jesse Gillespie's band, featured Ray Brown and Jackson. We were the two featured stars in the band. So I went to the same fella and said, hey, homie. I said, you remember a little fella about a year ago that came in with a little set of fires that looked like an iron board? And you told him, no, you can't jam with, boy, we don't have no jamming in here, you know. And I say, I took him out to the front of the club, right? I pointed up to the side. I say, see that? I say, guess what? I say, see the name of that? I say, that's me. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 but today the 50 seconds is man, fascinating. You know, you had 15 clubs, on, you know, like say, of eight, nine clubs on each side of the street. And everyone had live music and had a name in it. Billy Holiday. Uh, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, all all the bands, Coleman Hawkins. Sure. You know, we had a, a radar playing this is big band on, in, in the same nightclub, Fitzgerald Street. The spotlight. Right. 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 Yeah. Some somebody told me the monk played piano with the band for a while. Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah. John Lewis took his place. As a matter of fact. That must have been a kick. Yeah. It's been quite an experience. Sure. Yeah. As Milt Jackson mentioned, we've had another gentleman come into the studio, and we want to thank him for making the trip all the way up here to the Upper West Side of Manhattan when he's working. This gentleman has been stumbling around here looking for this station for a half hour. Well, I apologize. Well, I don't know. I didn't know direction. where it was, you know. No, but, but, oh, well, I guess that's my fault, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I told him the entrance was right at 150 Street, right there where my car is parked. No, you, no, you couldn't. No, I didn't miss see it. it you didn't? Oh. I had a... Anyway. It's confusing nonetheless, but he got Ray Brown is here. And he'll and now take over. Sitting right across from me. What a pleasure. Oh, yeah. Here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to get here this late, but I know that uh, Jackson has taken care of business because he could spend two days telling stories about a lot of things that include the two of us Yeah. in the music business, you know? Yeah. Because we've been together 40 years, you know? Yeah. And uh, a lot of things transpired during that time. But it's still a lot of fun to go to work every night. That's, o- that's, that's very what makes obvious. it important. For anyone that sees you guys perform, I mean, I'm a, a musician myself, and when you see guys that have been doing it for as long as you have and the music is still as enthusiastic and still getting to the music as much as you did years ago, that's a real inspiration for younger musicians. And uh, it's a pleasure just to see you two guys sitting here. And I want to ask Ray Brown a couple of the same questions that we're talking to Milt Jackson about, and that's that on the radio station here, uh, this gentleman over here, Greg, Greg is uh, producing this Harlem Week, and uh, that will be coming up in two weeks, and we were talking about some of the, about the ambience in Harlem, what it was like when you first came to town, and I know I read a story where I think it was Hank Jones introduced you to Dizzy mm-hmm. on your first right. night in town, and then yeah. from then on, you know, you kind of took the town by storm. Maybe you could tell us about when you first got to Harlem and some of the spots that you remember and some about the ambience as it's different from what it is today. Well, you know, the the one thing that was different 
that's different, I think, all over the world is back in the 30s and 40s, 50s in New York, there was live music everywhere, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost every club you could go in had a trio or a quartet or a small group, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, it was there was music everywhere, you know. You didn't have to go downtown or to the village or, you know, if you went to Brooklyn, there were clubs there. If you went to the Bronx, there were clubs there. You know, uptown, there were clubs everywhere, you know. And uh, that's what I liked about New York as opposed to places like where I came from. I came from Pittsburgh. You know, we, we had a lot of music in the theaters. We had two big theaters, one in the black neighborhood and one downtown, and they always had music every week, a different band. But uh, there wasn't a nightclub you could go to. We had dances, and I wasn't old enough to go to those anyway. Yeah. But um, they had a band come in every week and play a dance. Somebody told me a story about you being in when the Basie band was at the William Penn. That's right. Yeah. Now that's Walter really going Page back. And Joe Jones. Walter Page, Joe Jones, Freddie Green, and Basie. Yeah. Uh, I used to go sit on the piano every day after school, listen to the band. Prez was in the band then, right? Lusty yeah, Lusty Young. Sweet Edison was in that band. Right. Herschel Evans. Yeah. That that great oh. rhythm section. Walter That's Page. Right. Uh, one of the things I just got to get off my chest, I told it to Milt Jackson, was that you guys are just here for half an hour, 45 minutes, and there's so much I'd like to talk about. I'd like to invite you back, first of all, because I'd like to get into depth into all that stuff. Uh, we're probably going to have to do that. I know I'm going to have to do that. Okay. And uh, you were going to split milk? Yeah. I have to pick up Mickey Roker and <laughs> get to work. <laughs> okay. Are you going to stay, Ray? Well, uh, are we going to be on the air longer? We, we've got 20 more minutes. Okay, sure. Okay. All right. Milt, thank, thanks, Milt. Thank you, Milt Jackson. Milt Jackson is, is heading out. And uh, we'll continue with Ray. Okay. And uh, when we... When I started the interview with Milt, I had put a record on because I wasn't sure exactly what time everybody was going to get here, and it was this great record that you made at a concert with Charlie Parker and Lester Young at Carnegie Hall with Roy Eldridge and, uh, back in 1949. Whew. And That's a while back. Yeah. And it starts out with this great Lester Young solo, of course, and Milt was just listening to it, and we were talking about Lester and the, the amazing things he could do. And uh, since I'm a Lester Young fan myself, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about when you first met him and what he was like as a person and what his music meant to you, if you don't mind. Well, um, I met Lester Young maybe a half a dozen occasions before I really met him to know him. You know what I'm saying? A lot of times you introduce to somebody. Sure. Uh, but you don't know who they are, or I mean, I'm, they don't know. You don't I know had, them. I had a drink with you three years ago. <laughs> Same thing. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? You, right. You meet someone, yeah. and you don't know. Uh, uh, what had happened was when I was in high school, um, the musicians that were staunch jazz fans had a little club, and of course, most bands made records maybe a seventy-eight about four, three or four times a year. So we would get the records when they came out, and you had three days to learn the solos on the record. Had to be able to sing them all the way through. And uh, if you didn't, then we wouldn't let you. You know, if you came to somebody's house, if you came to somebody's house, knocked on the door, guy would open the door, crack, and then you'd have to sing the latest solo. Uh -huh. You know. Yeah. Or you'd have to sing maybe the end of. Uh, 
ปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบอปูดูบิดูบ
just like to get you to talk about just a couple of the of all those great bass players, and there were many great bass players, you know, Walter Page and John Kirby and Billy Taylor, and so who were some of your favorites back in those days before Blanton turned it around? Uh, and like, what did someone like Walter Page mean to you? What did he offer to you? Is it the great feel he had? Yeah, well, you yeah. see, uh, prior to Blanton opening, is really opening it up. Um, the bass was a means of rhythm trance uh uh rhythm movement you know right um uh, it was more feel than even sound because uh page came from the old school of slap bass you know so you played the bass but you played it in a way that the string slapped up against the board right. and when you played it like that you could hear it a block away you know which was necessary because there were no microphones and no amplifiers. I mean, you know, I mean, Paige used to stand in the back of that band. He used to have one microphone Helen Hume sang out of, or a guy would come down and play a solos, in, you know, in the front mm -hmm. of the band. But you could hear him all the way in the back of the dance hall, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and he was a big guy anyway, you know. Biggin. They call him <laughs> Biggin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the name. Uh, Philly Joe Jones uh, laid that name on Oscar Peterson years ago. When we used to run around together, uh, he used to call Oscar Peterson bigger. So that name's been moved around a bit. Right. Uh, but right. anyway, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Kirby and and uh, Walter Page, uh, there was a guy used to play with, uh, a guy used to like here sing named Gene Austin. Uh, Gene Austin had a bass player named Candy. Candy, yeah. Yeah, and he played that same way, very good, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that was the style in those days. Right. And I was very impressed with it. Uh, Wellman Broger played with Ellington, another guy, you know. Uh, sure. And then Pettiford sort of turned that whole thing around. I mean, not Pettiford, but I mean, Blanton seemed to turn that whole thing around, see. Right. He took the slap out of it and just got a straight, beautiful sound, you know. No more slap. And started adding a few extra notes and extended the uh, range you know sure. he was he had studied it and he was playing you know upper and down and mixing it up you yeah. know and made it very interesting yeah i also thought he was you know with all those great lines he was playing as opposed to just uh, you know root and fifth all the time and that's all that right kind yeah of stuff. so i'm saying you know right. uh, even though i remember the guys before blanton uh, that's where the big, because I came right in the middle of that, you yes, know. Yes, you did. I mean, when I started taking up the bass was when Blanton uh, had just started making those solos. And every guy's house you'd go to that had a bass would have those on his record player, <laughs> you know, so you heard them everywhere you went. Did you see Blanton in person? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, what was he like? Well, I didn't meet him. I just saw you him just in the theater, him. yeah. Yeah. Was he playing without an amp too? I, I assume. Oh, oh it, it, yeah. The, the amp two thirty nine and forty. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. How about when you first played in Dizzy's band? No amp. No either. amp. That's right. When did the amp come in? Well, you uh, in for most just in the. Uh, I got a amp with a coil in it that used to go out. Predictably, go out. Mm -hmm. Sometime during the night, you know. I mean, you'd be going boom, 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 boom. And you disappear, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't really great reproduction either, you know. It was just a a microphone, you know. 
we had Eddie Durham up here not too long ago, and he was telling a story about the, I think he was one of the first electric guitar That's players. That's right. And he was talking about the Benny Moten band, even before Lunsford's band. And he said he'd go out with his amplifier made with, you know, with, with uh, hangers and everything, and he'd be playing a solo, and all of a sudden the, the police report would come in over the speaker during the... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was very unreliable in those days. Oh, yeah, that used to happen a lot, sure. Yeah, You'd get all kind of calls. Yeah, I <laughs> have. We're talking here with Ray Brown. I can't tell you what it was a thrill just to be sitting across from this guy, and uh, you don't have to introduce Ray Brown to a jazz audience. The big deal is that he's playing with Milt Jackson, Cedar Walton, and Mickey Roker down at the Blue Note, 131 West 3rd Street, and they'll be there through Sunday evening. I know in recent years you've been involved in many different aspects. Like the first time I met you was you were backstage at the Kennedy Center when the MJQ was appearing there just a few years ago mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, role of, of road manager, or manager anyway, yeah. if not road manager. When did that start? When did you start investigating the other parts of the business outside of just playing the bass so wonderfully? Oh, that started quite a few years ago, maybe 50, 15, 60. 20 years ago. Yeah, in the 50s. Um, I think I always had a penchant for business. And consequently, most of the bands that I worked in, somewhere along the line, I'd wind up taking care of the money mm -hmm. and paying everybody, you know. And... and uh, turning in the reports, you know. I did it with Oscar Peterson, and I was with him for 15 years, you know. So, you know, just you know, just became a way of uh, of life, you know. Sure. And I don't know how it ever happened. I don't know whether I asked for it or somebody asked me to do it, but, you know, you seem to wind up in your spot yeah. sooner or later. We all do, you know. Yeah. Just wound up gravitating towards those responsibilities. I guess, you know, you're a team player. I guess be, being a bass player, you know, you're a team player. That's right. Yeah. You mentioned before those great records you made uh, on the Pablo label, and we should mention that uh, I guess one of your most recent albums is this record with Milt Jackson called Soul Root on Pablo. Oh, yeah. And that's Pablo number 2310900, in case you're interested in picking it up. But you made so many records for Norman Grands. I mean, hundreds, probably thousands. And uh, it'll be a task for someone someday to figure out exactly what you did. They'll probably have to go borrow, if you kept a notebook, maybe. No. You didn't. Oh, well, <laughs> no. Forget it, then. It's going to be impossible. No, but you know, the, the problem is, if I ever tried to get a record of everything I ever recorded with everybody, uh, I'd have to go in so many directions. You know, right, I mean, I'd have to do all the movie tracks. You know, forget the jazz records. I'm talking about the other stuff, um, uh, pop records. Sure. I used to make all those records. Um, uh, what's the girl who you got the dog in the window? Oh, um, Teresa Brewer. No, no, no. Patty Page. Patty Page. Yeah. Yeah. I used to do all that stuff with Mitch Miller. You know. Sure. Uh, some of the stuff with um, Mule, Frankie Lane. You know. Uh, and that's, you know, going back all the way up to recently. This is a funny story I tell sometimes. Uh, I guess about two years ago, I got a call to go in and do a record date. And I got there with my bass, and there was nobody there except three or four people standing in the studio. And I uh, walked in, and I said, uh, what's going on? The guy said, oh, just unpack and tune up, and we'll be with you in a minute. I went in the studio and started tuning up. And, uh, there was some earphones, and there was a sheet of music paper and a pencil and a music stand and a microphone. 
So uh, the guy says, uh, we don't have music for you. We just play the track, and you make up your own part, you know. And it was just for one tune on the album. Hmm. And they paid me very well for it. But it was a group called Blondie. Now, I didn't... I hate to admit this, but I didn't know anything about this group, uh, even though they were a big-selling group. I mean, they had gold and platinum records all the time. Right. Uh, so anyway, I did this track, and there's a gas station I used to go, down, go to by my house, and there's a bunch of young kids working in there. Some of them are musicians. And they'd go in there, and I'd get my gas. Sometimes I'd have the bass laying in the back of the car. And they never paid me any attention. Get my gas and go. I made this record with Blondie, and about... Six weeks after it came out, it was number one on all the charts, even in England and a couple other places. And I go to the gas station, and a guy takes my car, and he looks at it. He says, Ray Brown. He says, are you the Ray Brown on the Blondie record? <laughs> <laughs> you made it. <laughs> and then they're all crowded around me, you know, so... Uh. Bringing music to all different kinds yeah, of generations. So, you know, if I had to look up all the records I made, I'd have to go on. Oh. I made records with uh, people called The Doors. Oh, really? With yeah, The Doors? Yeah, yeah. Well, all kinds of stuff. So, well, I'd have to go a lot of ways to find all the records I made. But I, would you agree that uh, that of all those thousands of sides, that that duo session with Duke was probably one of the one of the highlights? highlights. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> unquestionably. I've been waiting for that all my life. It was called "This One's for Blanton." And uh, there was such an amazing rapport between the two of you on that session. Was it just pretty much a matter of you both meeting at the studio and making the record? Because I know that your schedule and his schedule were so crazy, you probably didn't get together before. Or well, this was the last record he made before he died. And he was sick then. He was sick. We did the second half of that album. He had a fever, you know. Did they videotape that stuff? No, they videotaped a quartet thing we did. Oh, right, right, about right. a year before that, with Joe, Joe Pass and I and Louis, Louis Belson. Right. But the duos ones weren't... Uh, no, we did one track. We did one side in uh, Los Angeles, and we did another one in Vegas. He was working in Vegas, and I flew up there, mm -hmm. and we finished the album up there. When did you first actually play with Duke? Was that the very first time? Or you must have been on the road together. Did you ever sub in the band or do anything? No, but we, we messed around a few times in a theater sometimes. Uh, when I was married to Ella Fitzgerald, they used to be together on a lot of, at the Paramount Theater here right. for years, they, you know, another Apollo Theater. So I would mess around a lot, but uh, I had never really played uh, in his band or spent any time playing with him. Yeah. And I had to research all those old Blanton records right. to go over those bass parts, and I don't know how he remembered that stuff, yeah. you know, because he hadn't played that in years, you know. Yeah. Well, that's right. It's called This One's for Blanton, and I'm sure everyone has it already. One of the real classic jazz records. With our guest, Ray Brown, we've got less than four minutes to go. And again, I want to repeat what I said before. I do hope that you can come here again before you leave town or next time you come to town and spend three hours with me because I've got a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about that we, that we okay. didn't even get to tonight. We'll go back. I'll, I'll talk to Jackson. and we'll set something up and come back. Okay. That would right. be great. And uh, I know there's a gentleman here who wants to talk to you about Harlem Week. And maybe we'll get a chance to do that at the next.